Hello and welcome to Great Minds Don't Think Alike. You're with Christian. And I'm Daniel. And today we're going to be talking about autistic stereotypes. So now we're going to have an interview with Daniel Giles from the Sydney Autism Conference. Hello Daniel, how are you going? Good, thank you. What is the conference all about? Um, about the conference I attended was called the Autism in Education Conference and it explored the latest ideas of educating people on the autism spectrum as well as and that also involved sharing stories about the, our personal journeys through the education system. Okay, thank you for that. So, no. um, so what are you doing at the um, at the conference? Are you are you speaking? Are you what are you speaking about? Um, I did a couple of presentations at the conference. One presentation talked about my journey from special education to um, completing honours at La Trobe University. Another presentation was talking about some of my um, gifts and special abilities as a person with autism. So I talked about how I used to draw um, road signs like green directional signs that had all the route numbers and names of towns on them, as well as my current gifts in photography and using them effectively. And I also touched on the special abilities of someone, um, other people who have autism from someone with savant skills who could tell me how many days old I was to um, someone who was non-fable but would give me the biggest hug. <laughs> That's wonderful. So do you, do you feel your talk was well received at the conference? Yes, as far as I could tell from how I interacted with the um, audience afterward, I felt it when um, well, because um, people generally appreciate the opportunity to hear from an insider's perspective. Of course, that is certainly what we're all about here. What have the highlights been so far for you? Have there been many? Um, for me, the biggest highlight was listening to other people on the autism spectrum share their journey of going through school and I particularly enjoyed listening to a fellow contact talk about um, her journey through the Australian Maths and Science School and her learning style but as well as um, another person talk about um, thinking about employment for people on the autism spectrum. Okay, that's good to know. And what have you learned so far from the others, from the other talks? Yeah, the conference finished yesterday, but I think for me the biggest 
existing uh, land was about how um, alternative education method work. I learned a little bit about some of the satellite classes, that aspect, which is an autism organisation in New South Wales. They run satellite classes um, within a mainstream school setting and they, um, yes, they, they basically yeah, did some, um, what's it called, um, aspect, yeah, did some um, discussion on um, how those classrooms work. So yeah, I read the biggest things I felt I took from the conference, well as networking with others. Well, that's very interesting. Was there anything else you wanted to add there, Daniel? Yeah, I really enjoyed the conference and the opportunity to share my story from an insider's perspective. Um, and I'm actually looking forward to speaking again at the Victorian Autism Conference here in Melbourne um, this coming May. Well, of course, and we'll be talking about that um, on our next program. Yeah, looking forward to it. Sure. Well, um, thank you very much, Daniel. Um, great to have you here. Yep, it's been thank a pleasure you. to have you here. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you very much. Thank you. So now we're going to be talking. We're going to be talking about today um, autism stereotypes in the media. Um, starting off with a stereotype that Daniel finds pers- personally finds particularly irritating: the savant stereotype. Yes. Now, okay. Let me start off by saying that this stereotype it has done a lot of good for the autism spectrum. But at the same time, it has also done a lot of harm. It did good in that it, it brought interest to the to the ma- to the general public of the the spectrum. But unfortunately, it's gone so far as to become as to become a stereotype that I think raises undue expectations on on a lot of young people. On a lot of young people, I mean, yes, there are particular abilities that go with autism, but a lot of the time they're pretty w- within the normal range of skills. It's, it's not genius level, which is what is often portrayed. A good example of this would be... Uh, the classic example is the film Rain Man, where he manages to count 246 toothpicks on the ground within a matter of seconds. Yes, which some people can do, but the, hmm. it's important to note that Savant Syndrome is as rare in the autistic community as it is in the general population. Hmm. I mean, as far as extreme... It basically, it's another extreme stereotype. So the hmm. extreme stereotype before then was... The fact um, of being completely incapacitated, the, the other extreme, being completely disabled, being able to do com- virtually nothing, um, mm. or being stupid, basically, um, whereas brain dead, whereas the, the savant syndrome is the other extreme. Genius, being able to do superhuman things. Um, I suppose, in contrast to their other limits. Yes. Um, so I suppose in terms of two extremes, well, you'd rather be considered a genius than being completely stupid. Um, but it does, you're, you're right, it, it does create this, put this expectation on someone who's been newly diagnosed that they are going to have to be, um, com- they're going to have to accomplish the same feats as uh, someone like Mozart or someone like Hitchcock or someone like Isaac Newton or Albert Einstein, mm. who often um, you know, referenced when talking about autism. And that's another thing. The, the stereotype is oft- not only por- 
perpetuated by people who were not on the spectrum but think this is what people on the spectrum would be like. Hmm. It's perpetuated by Aspies themselves by trying to claim that people like Mozart or Isaac Newton and so on and so forth were on the spectrum, but we actually have no solid proof that they were. I mean, well, you can't diagnose someone unless you're in the same room with them. And at, at, the time they, at the time they were alive, no such, no such image actually existed. I know, it's, it's hard enough trying to diagnose a living person with autism, um, let alone someone who's been dead for one, several centuries. Yes, and, and uh, so another good, example, another good example of it is a guy, is a, is a man called Kim Peake. He's an Englishman and he's an author. He was challenged to learn conversational Icelandic in seven days, and that he did. He, after seven days after being set that challenge, he then appeared on Icelandic on an Icelandic talk show and was conversing near fluently in Icelandic. Wow, that that mm. is impressive, but that that is that is exceptional. But um, mm. but but uh, I think you know, um, just like everyone has their own strengths and weaknesses, um, autistic people, mm. they might you might notice a certain pattern mm. of um of particular talents. Um, Absolutely. A good, exam- a good example of, one that, of a portrayal that I thought portrayed the, the talents that go with autism really well was, was a, a film called Adam, starring Hugh Dancy, in which we get the sense he had an, a good capacity to learn, to learn almost un- encyclopedic knowledge of, a, of, an, of a, a, top, a topic that he's interested in and that he focuses on a lot, like, for, like science fiction or space. Like, he could focus so heavily on it that within a short amount of time, like maybe a couple of weeks or a couple of days, he would, he would acquire almost encyclopedic knowledge of that topic. And now that is possible. I can do that. A, a lot of Aspies can do that. That's realistic. What, what I don't like is the portrayal of the ability to speed read, say, two pages of a book in, like, four seconds and be able to memorise it word for word. No, absolutely not. And even um, Temple Grandin in, in, her, in the biopic um, Temple Grandin, the, the film about her life, um, when you actually listen to, the, to her, um, her film commentary um, by her of, of the film, almost the whole way through she's saying, that's, yes, that's exactly how my mind works. I think in pictures. Um, that is exactly how I, how I feel. Uh, that is exactly the kind of reaction I get when I touch a certain type of texture or when I see an animal. Um, she was basically saying, yep, 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 right up until... Um, this point where she memorizes a whole page of writing, like yes, she's a visual thinker, but there's a very there's a big difference between having a mind that's like Google Images and thinks visually, and having that superhuman ability to mm. memorize a whole slab of text. A slab of text that's mm. in French, mind you, and yes, she, yes, and she wasn't really a French speaker. She might have learned it for a couple of years, but it was not her. It was not her strength. No, certainly not. You're listening to Great Minds Don't Think Alike on Simation. All right, and our, our next topic is going to be on the maths and science stereotype we often see pushed yeah. yes. in the media. This, this idea that if you're on the spectrum, um, you automatically are more of a scientifically, mathematically-minded person and aren't really very creative. Now, I will just say I am someone who memorises facts easily, but I don't consider myself that particularly creative. So in a way, the stereotype applies to me but it doesn't in that I'm not very good at maths or science. Yes, and the facts that you memorise aren't um, related to maths or science. They're to do with movie trivia, like oh, historical just, trivia. Just w- historical trivia, whatever trivia on anything that I find <laughs> interesting. It's, 
Yeah, basically, that's a better way to put it. Like, a better Aspies can be good at pretty much whatever they want as long as they're interested in it, but it's almost to the exclusion of almost everything else. Yes, quite. D- mm. Depending on the, the inti- autistic individual, it seems mm. to be a pattern that it very much... It's, it's, well, it's called a disorder for a reason. Disorder-based autistic spectrum disorder. Disorder really just means unbalanced, so mm. less, less of an even distribution of, uh, of abilities. Mm. Now... Christian, do you consider yourself you consider yourself particularly creative? Creative, um, yeah, I certainly. I, I, I'm told very often that I'm a creative person, that I'm mm. imaginative, and that I, um, yeah, I, I put myself in that field. I, I also wouldn't really put myself in a maths or science kind of field. Like I, I sort of have a passing interest, um, but I think that sort of systematic area of my brain is uh, directed more towards things like living languages, linguistics. Um, than mm. analysing language. That's where my analytical skills are uh, put towards. Well, that's good to know. And, uh, well, yeah, the only sciencey thing I achieved in high school, I failed it most of the years, except except year eight, was actually memorising and performing Tom Lehrer's Elements song, in which he lists all the known elements from 1959 from the periodic table, not in order of the periodic table, to the tune of I am the very model of a modern major general from from Gilbert and Sullivan's The Pirates of Penzance. A very fun song. You, pro- you may have heard of it. Yes, I, I memorised it and sang it, but that was the only th- thing I achieved in science at high school. So I certainly wasn't a science person. But I'm kind of yes. perpetuating the stereotype as it is by saying I can memorise facts but couldn't actually... <laughs> well, s- song lyrics kind of seem to be the, the exception for a lot of people, like people who, are, who have aphasia where they... Um, so, like, Venikis... Um, uh, yeah, aphasia meaning a, meaning a speech um, difficulty. Um, so it seems as though they can't really say. Well, people have verticus aphasia means that um, they struggle to string a coherent sentence. Um, like it's grammatical, but it, it just makes no sense. Um, un, and broca's aphasia means that your f- speech is broken and it's very very difficult to, to physically produce it. Um, but the only ex- exception to both of those seems to be um, song lyrics. Um, because they are, they're kind of, um, rather than something you just, in a speech that you just kind of make up as you go along, it's that kind of rhythmic, it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of thing. It's like it flows much more easily, um, which is why when we want to memorise things, we put them in a song. Yes, or um, g- give it a bit of rhythm. Hmm. Another good way I find to memorise things is to, to pretend, if, if, you're, if you're reciting a long speech, almost pretend it's like one really long word that you're trying... Like like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> okay, yes. Like basically, that title's not that hard. Not that hard to remember, I find. But th- that's because it, I view it as just one word, not a series of words. Cr- not a not a series of words. I think if you if you think of song lyrics in that way, it also makes it easier to memorize. I find. Yeah, it's um, because because there's not much of a break between the word and it's and it, the words, and it's not just the words that you're memorizing. It's it's that mm. it's that rhythm. Um, but uh, but. So um, I don't know if, if if you're artistic. Does that mean that uh, if, you, if you put a rhythm to something, so like a, a routine, a pattern, a repetition, um, that makes it easier for you to? Well, that actually seems to be r- routines and patterns and mm. predictability, um, particularly yes. in the artistic community. Comes absolutely, and down. absolutely. Not spontaneity is a bit of a dangerous thing. Well, 
I, I don't know. I, I think I'm personally, I, I can be quite spontaneous sometimes. Like it was quite um, abusing, choosing um, where, where to sit in class at, at school. I, I'd be the only person sometimes who'd be willing to change my seat from day to day. Um, whereas the other students, like, remember sitting in one person's spot and they refused to sit in any other seat because apparently I'd taken their seat. Oh, so yes. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> oh, mm. you, you, find, you found that annoying as well? Yeah, oh. yeah. well, I got irritated when I sat down somewhere and the person, the person I sat next to would say, excuse me, can you not sit there? Will is sitting there or so on. That's just a random name I threw in. Oh, Will is sitting there. Mm. Oh, yeah. And, but when, when he quite clearly wasn't, like, this, this chair is empty. Yeah, that, that used to frustrate. Well, it, it, that also comes back to the little interpretation of language. Like, the, mm. no, Will is not sitting there. Like, mm. when, when someone says, don't interrupt me, I'm speaking to Sam. Mm. No, you're, you're not talking to Sam. You're talking to me, telling me not to. Uh. Yes, uh, t- that's taking things rather literally, which we may get onto so- at some point later on. Indeed. The next topic we're going to be talking about is uh, taking things literally. Now, this is... This is a common stereotype that actually is kind of true. Not kind of, it actually is pretty true. Yeah, I, mm. I, I suppose as far as stereotypes go, like mm. the savant one was positive at least, oh, theoretically. Mm. Um, this one, yeah, it's it's probably the one that's not that, that's the closest to the truth. Yeah. Um, I mean, all stereotypes come from somewhere, so mm. it's it's true. Like I, we were talking about at, at school, the taking the. Um, Taking, I, you can't sit in that spot because someone else is sitting there. Even though the seat is, no one is physically sitting there, but the seat is claimed, so to speak. Mm. Um, so, but but in, in terms of, I mean, the, the examples that most people cite are things like uh, taking idioms that are clearly not meant to be taken literally, literally, um, like the, let's address the elephant in the room. What? There's an elephant in the room. Yes. Like, <laughs> or oh, I'm feeling <laughs> under the weather. Well, of course you are. We're all under the weather. Okay? <laughs> yes. Actually, it is. Yeah, it is true that a lot of people on the spectrum do take think things like that literally. Except that's not to say that people on the spectrum aren't capable of learning. Like I use sarcasm all the time. I love mm. irony. Oh yeah, yeah. Me, me too. Like many people on the spectrum have great senses of humour, and mm. part of that is, I think, part of that also is also just the blunt honesty that mm. seems to be a pattern for people on the spectrum. And this lead well, this leads on to, mm. to, to onto another stereotype that kind of links to this one, and that is people on the spectrum not having a sense of humour. <laughs> okay, now Michael Palin from Monty Python has often. Some people have speculated whether or not he's on the spectrum. A lot of people emphatically deny it, saying that that he can't be on the spectrum. He has a sense of humour. He's the next member of Monty Python. Now, to be honest, the reasons for saying that he is on the spectrum do seem to be lacking. But if if that's one of the main main reasons for saying he's not on the spectrum, then I think that's that's even weaker. No, if... if that's the trouble when people try to use things like that to rule it out. Like, oh, they they're fu- you know they're funny or they have feelings or whatever or they or they have lots of friends. Or I feel I should also mention Robin Williams as an example of a yes. great Aspie comic. Because um, mm. he is. Yeah. Are, are we sure about him? Has he actually got a diagnosis? Oh, I, I um I, sh- I should look into that whether or not he's officially diagnosed. Um, or it could just be that he presents many mm. Aspie traits. Um, but per- personally, I think. I can believe. Well, personally, I can believe anyone is really on on the spectrum. You just you don't know. You can't tell these things from the exterior. Not well, the unless time. unless you know them as a person. Indeed, mm. um, and, a, and a public figure. I mean, you certainly. Mm. 
Well, I mean, one one bit of evidence you could say is that if you watch interviews with him, he doesn't cut with the jokes. It seems like jokes are all he knows to cope with conversations. You could you could almost say. Yeah, it, it is. Well, well I, I suppose in terms of the sometimes um, a, a difficulty reading social cues is presented. So mm. it's it can be a bit hard to sometimes if you're autistic to register whether someone has. Um, heard you or understood you or is following what you're saying because they might not explicitly be saying oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, I understand Um, and I suppose laughter is one of the uh, probably the easiest way for an audience Mm. to communicate non-verbally I suppose non-verbally to the person who's speaking Mm. that they are on your side and that they are with Mm. you and understanding you Absolutely, but but this belief that uh, Aspies Aspies or Rorties don't have a sense of humour well, to, to put it a bit well to give a bit of a reality check, to put it clearly, everyone has some form of a sense of humour, I reckon. But mm. s- for some people, it might not be quite as obvious. Like, their sense of humour might be warped or it might not have initially come across as a sense of humour. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, humour is so subjective. So, mm. well, you know, to some people, mm. something is, you know, to some people, Borat is funny. To some people, it's just disgusting. Oh, um, yeah. For some people, Chris Lilly is very clever. To some people, he's just... Exaggerated oh, uh, in your face. To give my personal opinion mm. on Chris Lilly, yes. I think he's extremely talented, but mm. I find his characters more obnoxious than funny, personally. <laughs> oh yes. Well, you see, it's it's incredibly subjective. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and I do think, I mean, in terms of um, people feeling that they can't laugh um, at someone who's autistic, like um, a, a book like The Rosie Project or some um, or mm. show like The Big Bang Theory, um, <laughs> um, you know, people feel that, oh, no, you can't laugh at someone because they have Asperger's. Well, no, I, I think it... Well, yeah, you can. And um, and I think that there is a lot of... There is a lot of humour in, um, mm. in, in autism and in the sort of, you know, the situations you find yourself in and the some of the social interactions or social mm. clashes that you have with people mm. it's 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 like the, the fish out of water sort of humor mm. well mm. actually you bring up the big bang theory i've never been a fan of that show but mm. i remember asking what another aspie thought of that show and he said the problem he had with that show was was that he felt they were more laughing at the spectrum rather than with the spectrum or laughing at sheldon rather than with sheldon yeah, I mm. I can kind of see that. I, I think in order to be laughing with them, you kind of have to be finding them amusing, but also thinking that the autistic character has a point. Oh, um, yes. So that that that's certainly the case I found with the Rosie Project, and that's certainly mm. like say Marion Max, um, mm. the Australian claymation. His observations about human human humanity, humans being illogical. Like you know, why do they invent a bus timetable when buses never run on time? Why you know, why don't they recycle? Why don't they all all, all these all these ridiculous things that people do that are totally illogical, um, but are just you know, told, people are just told to dismiss them as that's just how the world is. Uh, but you see, the thing mm. is though, emotions mm. emotions are often very logical. So that's illogical. Yeah, that I do agree with the. With the generalisation, people saying that people on the spectrum aren't emotionally intelligent, I I tend to agree with that in a way. Emotionally, what what exactly uh, does emotional intelligence mean, or at least for you? Well, say you, you feel say you're feeling anxious about something that's really not that big a deal. Hmm. So, like, oh, you, you might be feeling anxious. Oh, what if they don't? What if they don't have turkey sandwiches at the at, at the cafeteria, or or so on, or what if it starts raining outside and I don't have an umbrella? But oh yes. So yeah, getting all worked out, up about something small like that—that that I do tend to agree with, though. 
I would say so. And um, mm. I mean, it's, I think people you know, who have autism are incredibly emotional. It's just that you know, maybe they don't really aren't mm. really able to identify what their emotions mm. are. I'm unable to regulate it. Sometimes it's it, some people even believe that you know we've busted the empathy myth on this show before that um, mm. autistic people are empathetic um, but some people believe that well they're not just baseline that mm. they, they have an excess of empathy or th- they do know, they do have empath- empathy but they don't know how to demonstrate it that's my interpretation of it I'd find. say so like so much emotional you know if you see someone crying if I see someone crying sometimes I or, or screaming or whatever I, I, there's so much information um, emotional information coming in that I don't know how to how mm. to respond or how to what to do to make someone feel better because there's yeah. just so many things that run through your head oh there are, and plus there are so many different ways you could a problem I had at school is often if I did see someone crying I would go over and ask them what's the matter mm. and th- they would say to me oh, no, don't worry about it Daniel uh, it's all right and then, and, and then someone else would ask them, and, and they would actually allow them to comfort them. And I'd think, well, oh, thanks. But, <laughs> oh, oh, well. That, that, that mm. inconsistency there, that just, that, that's always mm. bugged me. Um, mm. Okay, our next topic is on not liking being touched. Now, this, now this would be a sensitive one, I think, for, for some people. But, or not really... But as for not liking being touched, again, this one's relatively true, but I think it does get caricatured quite a bit. A good example would be the book and the stage play of A Curious Incident of a Dog in the Nighttime, in which the main character, whenever whenever he gets touched, he screams and hits. And and at some point, he and as a result, he ends up getting arrested for assaulting a police officer as a result. Ah, uh, yes. Now, it's not... I find it's not quite like that. From my personal experience, I, as a kid, I didn't like I didn't like getting touched. I didn't like cuddles. So what would happen if someone went to to cuddle me? I would I would back away or try to wriggle out of it. As a, as a result, that that that's what I did. But this ended when I turned when I turned thirteen. Towards the end of year seven, this changed. I actually found I did quite like the, the comfort of comfort of human touch. Eventually. That's- interesting except uh, yeah do you have an experience with this like a um, personal experience i'd say it i'd, I'd probably be, have been the opposite extreme like I, I probably liked more human contact than the average person like you know to the like my, my siblings often get annoyed with me because of um how much affection um i try to show them mm-hmm. like I, I hug them much more than they want to be hugged um, oh. <laughs> um and then but then sometimes like when my sister would just like playfully poke me or, or whatever that that mm. that unexpected touch is really what um irritates me and scares me but mm. you know, when you can see that the person is coming to hug you that's that that i've always found very comforting um also per- personal space i don't know if you have mm. an unusual any unusual experience with that but um same with me. I, I, I had very little personal space needs, so I, I actually don't. I actually feel perf- perfectly comfortable with someone being like a mm. half a centimeter away from my face. I've mm. had, I've had personal space issues issues only with the face. I didn't mind someone being close to me, but if their face was too close to my face, I would ask them to back away. Right. Mm. Kind of makes sense. But like, so mm. h- how do you fare with um? crowded buses or trams or, or things like that, crowded situations. Oh, then then it's kind of inevitable. I I try not to complain. <laughs> yes. But no, I, 
not a fan. I re- I really don't like crowded trains or buses. I don't like being cramped like sardines mm. with a group of people. But I don't think anybody does really. True. I I don't think anyone really. But but you you wouldn't say that you mind it more than the average person, I suppose. Oh no, I don't. I don't think so. Not not anymore. Nowadays, I don't really have a problem with being with being touched unless it's unexpected, like, <laughs> like you. But. Mm. But as a kid, I did I did have that, but I grew out of it eventually. But that's not to say that everyone grows out of it. There's a good movie. We mentioned a, a film called Temple Grandin before. Now we see in in that film that she just when she was young, she didn't like the the she didn't like being touched by people, and as a result, she as inspired by a machine that they use called a squeeze shoot that they use squeeze for, machine, yeah, yeah, that they use for cows. She tried it on herself, and she found it a lot more comforting than a hug from a person. So she tried to replicate it, replicate mm. her own version made of that was all entirely made of wood and rope. And she she found if if she was feeling stressful, she just she just go in there and she'd be a different person when she comes out. Now, however, Temple Grandin has said in recent years she stopped using that. She actually mass produced it at some point, but she stopped using it. She eventually decided. Uh, decided she actually does prefer the comfort of people now. She prefers hiking people rather than using a squeeze chute. But that's, that's interesting. Yeah. So um so how old was she when 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 that changed for her? I think she said it happened in around two thousand and eight. Oh wow. So yeah, she okay. continued using it well beyond middle age. But yeah, eventually she it she said her squeeze chute just broke and she never bothered th- fixing it. She found she didn't need it anymore. Oh, okay. So so it wasn't a, a completely conscious decision to cut herself away from it, but it was sort of like a... Hmm. You know, um, it just happened by chance and she found that it was a sort of a rel- revelatory moment for her, I, yeah. I suppose. It's very interesting. That's that's what I've read. Hmm. So, yeah, like she... Yeah, she, ac- she did actually say, and I quote, I'm into hugging people now. So, so yes, it is something that people... Most like most symptoms of the spectrum, I think a lot of people can grow out of them. And yes, and not liking being touched is one. I grew out of it. I grew out of it in my early teens, and I think I hate to say this on air, but I think it was due to hormones. Oh well, Mm. yes, that's that's Mm. perfectly fine saying. Um, Yeah, it's 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 a common thing there. Well, I Mm. don't necessarily know if you have to grow out of some of the symptoms. I mean. Mm. Each, each, sometimes I just think each their own. How, however, they want, however mm. they like to be de-stressed and comforted. Mm. Um, a, a big sum up, I'll just say, a big sum up of media portrayals on film and television is, I think, a problem with a lot of them are a lot of them are a lot of them are adults, but they try, but they base they base their performances on that of children on the spectrum. I find because okay, here's a problem: most people see this see the autism spectrum as a child problem, but it's not. Adults, adults obviously have it too, but I think yeah, a lot of this. Okay, the image a lot of people know of the autism spectrum mostly relates to children, and I think too many of the portrayals of adults reflect the the image we have of children, and people seem to forget that adults with Asperger's or autism are different from children with Asperger's or autism. There was a really good, there was a really good audio I heard about some guy saying that the social. The social difficulties of a person on the spectrum can range from a child not not fitting in with people on the on the playground to an adult not understanding office politics. Hmm. Yeah, there's there's certainly and and sometimes there might be 
similarities between the child behavior and the and the adult like behavior but mm. but it, it is it is important to you know to realize that they are they are still adults even though they are autistic they they might exhibit certain behavior that mm. can be seen as childlike but it, it is those yeah, as as you said there's there's different traits um whether presented in an, in an office or whether presented in the what what was the example we gave of the of the mm. child the and not not fitting in with kids on the playground yeah ex- exactly so it, it different manifestations and i i certainly see your point there mm. um Right, so that is all we have time for today. We're talking about um, stereotypes in the media, such as um, all, all, all autistic people like Matt's, all autistic people are not creative, um, don't like to be touched. Or um, savants. Exactly. Um, don't have a sense of humour. <laughs> yes, and I think we've, I certainly feel that we've proven that um, that is not true for all autistic people. Mm. Um, so, thank you very much for listening to us on Great Minds Don't Think Alike. Um, we'll, be, we'll be back on next Saturday, um, same time, 4 to 5, um, talk, um, talking about the um, Victorian Autism Conference, um, which I will be attending, um, and, and so will Daniel. Um, and we'll also have an interview with Lyndall Kennedy, the president of Asperger's Victoria. So, um, thank you very much from us. We're going to leave you with a song called...